最前沿的科学研究。I'm Shen Ning, and I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and you are listening to a fireside chat episode of Science Rehashed. Hi, Mehdi. Hi, Shen. And hello, Kira. Welcome. Yes, welcome. Today we are joined by one of our writers, Kira Brenner. Hello, Shen and Mehdi, and to our listeners, thank you for letting me do some co-hosting for this episode. I'm excited to join in on this side of production. Absolutely, happy to have you. We have got a great guest today for our fireside chat, Professor Emery Brown of Mass General Hospital, Harvard and MIT. He's an anesthesiologist, PhD in statistics, and more recently began computational neuroscience research. Shen, will you tell us a bit more about him before we get into our interview? Yes, of course. So, Professor Emery Brown grew up in Central Florida in a small town called Ocala. When he was in 11th grade, he transferred to Phillips Exeter Academy, a highly selective preparatory school in New Hampshire. From there, he went on to Harvard for his undergrad degree and then pursued his MD-PhD in statistics from Harvard University. Then he went on to do his internship in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and had a year of fellowship research before completing his residency in anesthesia at Mass General Hospital and has been on the clinical staff since 1992. Professor Brown first became a faculty member at Harvard and Mass General and later also joined MIT as a faculty in 2005. He has presented his research on the intersection between anesthesia and computational neuroscience broad in both French and English. As we will hear more about, Professor Brown's love and study of Romance languages began when he was in high school. Yes, you'll hear a few instances during our conversation about what Professor Brown thinks is the best way to communicate a specific message and how the language we choose to describe medical procedures matters. My impression is that studying foreign languages gives him a lens through which to think about how doctors deliver information to their patients. Uh, exactly. He's clearly not just a polygot, but a true polymath with diverse interests and the unique ability to bring some of them together in an interdisciplinary way. Professor Brown, welcome. It is a true pleasure to have you on the show today. Before we get into more of your professional career, we'd love to hear about your transition from Central Florida to the environment at the private high school you transferred to in 11th grade, Phillips Exeter Academy. How did that come about? So let me just go back a couple of years before that. So the summer of the summer after my ninth grade, so I was interested in languages growing up. I wanted to be a language specialist. And so Spanish and and then when I got to when I got to ninth grade, the high school I was attending didn't have a, a teacher for second year Spanish. So they did have introductory French. So I took introductory French. And then the summer after my ninth grade year, I went to Fran I spent a year in I spent the semester, excuse me, I spent the summer in France on a travel study program. And so I got to live with a French family and you know see Europe. I, this is the first time I'd been to Europe. So I was 14 at the time. I, I was traveled with a group of uh, from all over the United States. There are about, I guess, 50 of us. And uh, it, it was a great experience. So I came back and said, okay, I'm gonna continue French. So I didn't have someone to teach second year French. So I went back to Spanish. All right. 
so now that was so now it's summer after 10th grade and it's like okay summer after 10th grade what can you do now you've already been to europe you know what are you going to go go to the moon next or something because you know what what could top that so my mother came home with this idea of maybe going to exeter summer school to spend time there so i thought that was fantastic and i knew about phillips exeter academy my one of my cousins had gone to uh, had gone there for a summer program. And also I had a cousin who was actually enrolled there in Phillips Exeter, he, Lewis Whitsett, who was going there. So I went there. It was great. I loved it. The, the experience was amazing. It was real school. I, and because the, the other thing my mother told me, she said, you know, you're, you know, you're doing well here in Florida, but you know, you really haven't been tested yet, you know, so don't get too full of yourself, you know. So going off to extra was probably a good thing for that reason. And I really liked it. And so I was admitted into the regular session. And so, but I ended up in the regular session in January of my 11th grade, January of my 11th grade year. It was cold beyond belief. So that was that talk about a total, total transition and culture shock. That was like total transition and culture shock. But it was good. I mean, you know, the I was I was very lucky. My advisor was a linguist, Aldo Baggia. He was into Spanish and French and Portuguese. He spoke Italian. He started studying German later. So, you know, we hit it off really. And I would met him from the summer school. So we we hit it off, you know, very well. And in fact, after being on campus for just one semester, he said, you know, you finished all your requirements. Why don't you go to Spain the second semester of your senior year? So I said, that's a cool idea. So instead of finishing my last semester at Exeter on campus, I spent it in Barcelona, Spain as part of the school year abroad program. So, so when I finished up high school, I was very proficient in French and very proficient in Spanish, and I was going to become a linguist, essentially. And a linguist and also maybe work for the World Health Organization. So that was kind of my goal. And um, I had this grandiose, I mean, I, it, I had this grandiose plan that I was going to learn all the major languages of the UN because I wanted to be, you know, didn't want to be able to talk to anybody. And I realized that that was probably kind of hard. So I decided to learn the languages of the principal colonial languages of the African diaspora. So obviously English, Spanish, French, Portuguese. And then I said, well, you should probably learn one African language too. So I, I picked Swahili. So, so that's kind of been my goal. So I. Oh, this is great. So are you fluent in most of these languages, Spanish, French, Swahili, and currently work on Portuguese? Yeah. So, so the, so I, I turned 60 a few years ago and I made a pact with myself. I said, okay, what you're going to do this year is you're going to give a language, a lecture in four languages. All right. So. So I did in English, so I do that all the time. So I did in Spanish, I do that fairly frequently. So I gave a lecture in French in, in Paris. And then three weeks later, I had my lecture in Portuguese. And I had worked very hard. I had, you know, I had the slides all translated and everything, but I hadn't had enough time to practice, you know, to be ready for the questions and stuff. So I wimped, I have to tell you, I wimped out. But I told the guys, the next time I'm back there, I'm gonna do my, I still have to do my lecture in Portuguese. You know, so knowing that you have this passion for learning languages as you entered college, I'm really curious to hear when it was that you decided to pursue medicine in your career. Well, I, I actually went to I went to college with the idea of going into becoming a doctor, and what was less clear was what I was going to major in. I mean, 
and and and, yeah, and so the I mean I I like medicine I guess it probably dates back to you know I was sick a lot when I was a kid I had you know if there was a if there was a flu to be caught I used to I would catch it so I had a lot of doctor visits when I was a young kid like in first and second grade and I had I had you know this is in rural Florida I had this this pediatrician who was like really good his name was Dr. Butcher and uh and he used to come in, oh, what's wrong with this turkey here today? You know, uh, oh, what's up? You know, and, and he would percuss, he, you know, tap my back. I was like, damn, I want to do that. That's really cool, you know. Yeah. And but I mean, quite frankly, you know, he would I, every time I'd see him, you know, I'd be sick. And a few days later, he'd give me some medicine. And I'd feel better. I said, God, that's what I want to do. So that's how I got interested in medicine and then romance languages and medicine. So that sort of spelled something like World Health Organization or Medicine Sans Frontieres. So that's what I thought I would do. And then as I began to like statistics more, I decided I really wanted to get a PhD in statistics. And, and I really didn't care how I put it together. I didn't have a formula. I, I didn't. And I just, I said, this is what I want to study. I just think it's cool. It's fun. You know, that's what I wanted to do. And I really think that that's important. I think it's important to, to, to change your mind, to do a lot of different things because it only makes you broader and you have time to do that. Certainly when you're, you know, when you're younger and you can take advantage of those sorts of opportunities. And I, and I, and I'm glad I did, you know, like right now I, um, you know, I spent a good amount of time, you know, communicating with my colleagues in Latin America, um, you know, about anesthesiology. And I have, I have the good fortune to have like, you know, sort of open invitations to a number of those places because, they enjoy learning the anesthesiology from us, but they really appreciate the fact that I make the effort to do the lecture in Spanish or what have you. And I think, you know, that's, you know, that, that, I mean, that like really does it for me. It's fun for me. You know, I, I enjoy doing it and you know, like really getting it right. You know, not just making yourself understood like anesthesia, go out. No, no, no. You want to explain it the same way. Like one of my one of my language teachers told me, he said, "What do you want to do when you're learning a language? You want to preserve your personality in the in the other language. So every you want everything to translate over. You know, you don't want to be muted. And so, so if I'm funny in English, I want to be funny in French. That's how I, that's how I got into it. And why anesthesiology in particular? When I was in medical school, um, I, I guess there were there were really two things. One is um, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the pharmacology, I enjoyed the physiology, I enjoyed the real-time nature of it. You had to, you know, make decisions at the moment and it had to work, you know, because things, situations evolved very, very quickly. And um, <clears throat> the other thing was sort of more of a, I guess, more of a personal reason. Um, as I said, I thought I would be more like a, maybe a general practitioner working in the World Health Organization or something like that. And when I was a Harvard graduate student, MD-PhD student, I was a dorm advisor. At, uh, at Leverett House. I, I, that was the house I was in as an undergraduate. And I, and I was back there as a dorm advisor for uh, seven years, actually. And um, I had this total open door policy. You know, anytime you need anything, just come. You know, you know I, I'm there. I'm at your disposal. And it was a very good experience for me because it taught me a lot about myself. I, I realized that that's the sort of position that I felt that I should be if I were a general practitioner, if I were you know, working on the front lines of medicine. But I also realized, but what it taught me was I didn't have the capacity to do that. I mean, I still enjoy taking care of patients and, you know, giving care and what have you. 
but I needed something which is a little bit more sort. I needed sort of more finite, and that's where I, that was another reason, sort of sociologically, that anesthesiology was appealing. But it's very intense when I'm there. The patient is all I'm focused on that one particular patient, taking care of them in the best way I know how. But then I'm able to leave it and you know and come back. That was good for me psychologically. It was also good for being able to schedule and do research. This is a super interesting career uh, pathway. So from medicine then to statistics and computational neuroscience, why is that? Well, what happened was is that um, I, I really enjoyed, I, I did my PhD in statistics. And then, um, I mean, that was, I mean, that was just, you know, amazingly enjoyable. And I, I didn't know how I was going to, I, I didn't want to be a statistician that was just helping people plan studies. I wanted to do research myself. And and I didn't quite know what that meant because there weren't statisticians around who were sort of doing it basically that way, who had laboratories the same way engineers or biologists would have laboratories. But that's what I envisioned myself doing. And, you know, as I, when I started my career, I, I was able to get a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to set up my laboratory. And I continued working on circadian rhythms as I had worked on when I was a, um, a graduate student. That was my what I did my PhD thesis on, also my medical school uh, thesis. But I realized that um, I couldn't, I, I didn't see um, a very, I didn't see a very long career path working just on circadian rhythms. So I decided I would, I would decide I needed to work. I wanted to expand my, my field a bit, expand my, 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 my area of, uh, of applications of statistics. So I actually took a summer course at Woods Hole. I spent the summer there once I was a junior faculty member, two years on in the faculty or three years on the faculty at, at MGH. I took the methods in computational neuroscience course at, at Woods Hole and basically learned about computational neuroscience. And I thought this is a fun area. This is there are cool problems here, data analysis questions, which are there's nothing like what I studied in my PhD. So it was just a whole new world. So I just took it on. And Matt Wilson, who's at MIT, was working on studying the hippocampus, and they were doing some really cool experiments. And then part of this is just really serendipity. There was no statistics department at MIT. And I was teaching a statistics course in physiology at Harvard, Harvard Statistics Department at the time. And Lauren Frank, who was one of Matt's graduate students, came over to the Harvard Stat Department to get help with their data analyses. And I was thinking, wow, you guys are coming to me. I plan to come to you as soon as I read enough. You know, I feel like I could have a, a meaningful conversation with you. And so that was just a bit of serendipity. And that's how I got started on computational neuroscience. And Lauren you know, said, you know, if you can help me with the statistics, I'll teach you neuroscience. I said, that's a bet, you know, boom, let's do it. You know, so that's how I got started. If you're enjoying the show and you want to help us keep making the content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehash to become a patron for just $3 a month or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free science rehash water bottle.
Dr. Brown, there are some important distinctions you make between anesthesia and other states of unconsciousness, such as being asleep or in a coma, or as you mentioned, an induced coma, which is perhaps what you view as being the closest comparison. Well, so general anesthesia, so let me just give you a little definition of general anesthesia. General anesthesia means that you put a patient in a state that's reversible with using drugs so that they are unconscious, they don't perceive any painful stimulation, they're not going to form any memories, they're not moving around, so it's easy for the surgeon to operate. They're hemo- then they're physiologically stable, heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature, and you the state's reversible, so you use the drugs to bring them in, then you, you stop the drugs and you bring them out. That's the key thing. And the you know we can think of it as a drug-induced reversible coma because you do have to be insensate in order to tolerate the trauma of surgery because it is really it really is trauma or certainly would be if it weren't for the anesthesia in contrast local anesthesia is as it sounds i inject something like lidocaine or bupivacaine into an area and i numb that area or areas you know below that and then i can operate on your leg or i can operate on your foot that sort of thing and you could be totally wide awake so your whole body is not, you know, in sensei, just the area where I need to operate or where the surgeon needs to operate. And I was wondering, how would you respond in terms of comparing anesthesia versus sleep? So the thing with general anesthesia is, as I said, you're in this state where you're basically in a drug-induced reversible coma so that the surgeon can perform the operation and you're not traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. And so sleep is a, whole, is a physiologic state, which we enter into naturally. And it consists of two main phases, sort of the non-REM phase and the REM phase. So during the non-REM phase, you go through about three stages of non-REM sleep. And then you march out of that into REM and you repeat this alternation between the non-REM and the REM state about, about four or six times a night. The states, the whole cycle lasts about 90 minutes. And so this is physiologic. What we know is it's there, it, you need it to be healthy you know, to maintain immune function, to maintain cognitive function. And also there's some degree of restorative properties of, of sleep. And also it, it turns out that um, it's helpful for memory consolidation. So if we think of the various phases, the two phases like non-REM sleep and then REM sleep, so roughly speaking, maybe your brain is resting during the non-REM part and it's doing some work, maybe making some synapses a little more you know, stable, helping you to consolidate memories. So that's entirely different from general anesthesia, where we put you in a state and we hold you like right here in this fixed state so that you can, and there's, there's nothing intrinsically restorative about general anesthesia at all. In fact, it's, it's a man-made condition so that, so that we can provide you know, surgical therapies, basically, surgical therapies and then non-invasive, and then maybe some invasive diagnostic. The distinction between anesthesia, sleep, and an induced coma is an important one in your 2010 paper in the New England Journal of Medicine and other publications of yours. Can you elaborate on what makes anesthesia more similar to an induced reversible coma than it does to sleep? I think it's a very important idea. So so anecdotally, you know, most anesthesiologists, when they're talking to patients, they come and say, well, you know, Mr. Mr. Jones, I'm going to have you go to sleep for your operation. 
I mean, if you walked up to him and said, Mr. Jones, I'm going to put you in a drug-induced reversible coma, I mean, that probably wouldn't endear you to Mr. Jones, and he'd probably hop up off the bed and, you know, run away. But, but, but I think that's part of the mistake that we make. You know, we try to, you know, we speak metaphorically about what we do as opposed to being direct. So what I would go to him and say, Mr. Jones, I'm your anesthesiologist. I'm going to take very good care of you. During the anesthesia, you're going to be unconscious. You won't feel any pain. You, 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 you know, you won't be moving. Um, there, you won't form any memories, but I'll keep your blood pressure, heart rate, and everything totally under control. That's what I would tell him. And what did I do? I gave him a definition of general anesthesia. I didn't try to make it like a metaphor like sleep because someone who's astute, they'd say, oh, wow, but when you cut into me, won't I wake up if I'm asleep, right? So, and so again, this just, it just shows you how obvious it is that we, we speak metaphorically. And after a while, as you continue to use the metaphor too much, you realize you really can't say precisely what it is you're doing. And that's what bothered me. And, and it bothers me every time I hear one of my colleagues, you know, say, oh, you're going to go to sleep for your operation. And then, and it's sort of like, and if you, and if you ask them about it, say, why is it? Well, I know it's not sleep. Okay. Well then if you know it's not sleep, then just say that to the person in some way that's, you know, that's, that's humane, you know, and that, that, that makes sense. So we, we've, again, it's, it's our bad habits that have, that have been repeated over time and they've evolved into this, into this way of talking about what we do, which isn't direct. And after a while, because it's not direct, it means we really don't understand what we're doing. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research in anesthesia? So the the first thing I've been interested in is just trying to place anesthesia in a, in a neuroscience framework. And But I was practicing as an anesthesiologist. And the more I practice as an anesthesiologist, I noticed this very, this, this kind of fundamental issue that bothered me was that anesthesiology was acting in the brain, but somehow the brain was being ignored. Yeah, so it really seems like that there is this rather large gap in understanding, you know, about how anesthesia acts at a molecular level within the brain. Right. It's fitting to see this applies to anesthesia because like a lot of neuro research, we see the outcome of certain processes and are working to track down how we got there. We return a lot to the question, why is this working? I think it would be interesting to know how have you used your statistical work within your neuro and anesthesia research? So my area of expertise in, in, uh, in statistics is time series analysis. The, the analysis of phenomena that change over time, you know. Um, and, and that's why I was studying circadian rhythm. So they change over time with very regular oscillations. Well, it turns out that time series analysis is exactly what we needed to understand the EEG of patients under anesthesia. Because what would happen is you give them the drug, the brain circuits would oscillate, and the oscillatory characteristics reflected the drug you were giving, how much you gave, and the age of the patient. So the techniques that I learned in my PhD research to characterize oscillatory dynamics for circadian rhythms translated over almost directly to what I needed to do to help characterize the state of patients under anesthesia. So again, I didn't plan it that way. It just happened to be a bit of a serendipity. And we were able to work out a very systematic characterization of all the major anesthetics 
in terms of their, their EEG signatures. And that was one something we published in 2015, essentially showing that, again, that the, the drugs have these systematic change. Drugs in the same classes have very similar patterns. It sounds like you're working to pull back the curtain, so to speak, to help the medical community and patients understand what anesthesia really is. So if we're still exploring all these questions with anesthesia today, I imagine early anesthesia was even less transparent. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it, it was it, it was very interesting because it was, you know, William Morton, who back in the 1840s was a dentist, uh, who um, realized that he could give patients a, um, a complete dental prosthesis, like essentially a full set of dentures, if he could remove all their teeth. And so at the time, dentists as well as surgeons were measured by how quickly they could do a procedure. I think he could take a tooth out in about a minute or something like that. And so if you realize that this would be very, very painful, so he was looking for a way to render the patient insensate to that procedure. And the word anesthesia didn't exist at the time. So he's through a various set of uh, experiences, he, he uh, discovered ether. He learned about ether, I should say. And at the time, ether was something that you kept in a little vial, sort of on your kitchen table or your dining room table, and you took a little social sniff, you know, after after dinner, you know, you know, it was a kind of a, a socially appropriate or cool thing to do. And then there, there'd be these. There used to be this thing called ether follies, where people would sort of take enough ether and you know get giddy and you know pass out. But he was aware of this. He realized that ether had the potential for maybe being something that could be used to render someone insensate for his dental procedures. And he proposed it to John Collins Warren. And he's the one who came up with the term anesthesia because Morton wrote to him and asked him, what should I name this process? And you can find this letter online. Uh, uh, John uh, uh, Holmes went through a whole different set of terms and he finally settled on anesthesia. He said that it should be called anesthesia, meaning, you know, lack of sensation from the Greek. Um, the, the adjective should be anesthetic. And he said, well, whatever term we pick, let's realize that it's going to be with us now and for, you know, forever in the future. So that's where the term actually came from. It was like about six or seven days after the, the first public demonstration that it was. Uh, so just to give you the indication of the as well. This had spread to Europe by the end of the year and the first of the next year. It was already known and basically being done. So it was a major, a major success. And the, um, so, I mean, so that's, you know, that, that's basically how it, how it came about. Oh, this is really interesting. So how has anesthesia evolved since the 19th century? In some respects, not at all. Because you know what our primary anesthetics are? Ethers. We're still using ethers, isoflurane, desflurane, and sevoflurane. They're all ethers. So now we've made improvements. We brought other drugs into the mix. We use, we combine things, specific muscle relaxants. We use opioids to help control pain. We have drugs which we use to control blood pressure and that sort of thing. But and we use a, a range of intravenous drugs like propofol, the barbiturates, to you know induce unconsciousness, you know, rapidly or even maintain unconsciousness. But the core practice in the United States is still based on ether. And in that regard, I think there's a lot 
there's a lot of potential for progress. Um, and eventually we'll probably have to get rid of the inhaled drugs because um, they, they're, they're not friendly to the environment and neither, and especially like, it's not neither, but nitrous oxide, which is probably one of the, the strongest pollutants, you know, out there, the anesthetic gases. So where anesthesia may, made, I'd say, important headway in terms of improving care was in the, the mid 80s, where, and this was because of work done in Harvard Medical School, they put in place monitoring standards and the monitoring standards are very straightforward. They just basically say, for a person having surgery under, under general anesthesia, you have to monitor heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation. Prior to that, there was no such requirement. You could just give anesthesia, keep your finger on the pulse. But if you felt you learned all the things that you needed to learn about the patient doing that, that was perfect. So those monitoring standards, which were put in place by Harvard Medical School of Anesthesiology across the major Harvard hospitals in uh, 1985, were adopted broadly by the American Society of Anesthesiology in 1986 and became standards. So those are important for, so in other words, even though we don't know how the drugs are working, we're gonna help anesthesiologists watch you closely and make sure that your physiology is stable. That was the solution. And that's kind of been the core of our practice pretty much ever since then. And what would you say are some of the risks of anesthesia for patients? So what I'm happy to say is, you know, you know, death due to anesthesia, it's a very rare event. This idea that people are, oh, you know, like having anesthesia is a near-death experience. That's not the case. Um, and, you know, anesthesiologists are quite and anesthesia caregivers are quite practiced at taking care of patients. And, you know, even a lot of it's still empirical, they, they do a superb job of making sure that patients are safe while they have surgery. So that, that's not the concern. The concern is, is that, you know, we've, we give anesthesia now and a high fraction of patients, particularly elderly patients after anesthesia, their brains don't work. That is, you know, they may have cognitive problems, which might be just simple delirium, which could last for a few hours onto word finding issues that could last for several months or seemingly you know not completely resolved. And when you then once you realize that, you realize, okay, we're 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 beyond just being happy that you survived the anesthesia. We solved that problem years ago. What we need to do is give anesthesia in such a way that we return you to we return your brain to being as intact as it was prior to you having the surgery. And to be fair, we have to acknowledge the fact that it's not just anesthesia you're receiving, but you're having surgery. You probably have a lot of inflammation as well, and you have anesthesia. So there are three components, three things which are almost perfectly confounded that contribute to the state of someone's brain following surgery. Having said that, though, it's pretty clear that one component of it has to be the anesthesia. And elderly patients are much more susceptible to this because... There, there's a very easy way to think about it. So someone who's 80 years of age, their neurons have been around for 80 years. And with that, with time, the, the, the neurons start to break down. So the myelin sheath on the neuron you know, starts to break down. The dendrites don't extend or retract as much. You don't produce as much neurotransmitter. The cell is much more susceptible to oxidative injury. There is less... Um, 
the mitochondria don't work as well, the cell volume declines. So imagine that happening in every neuron. So the ability of the neuron to transmit electrical impulse, like an action is going to decline. So if I want to disrupt that to make someone unconscious, that's going to be much easier to do. Just, you know, sort of doing a back of the envelope reasoning. So by the same token, anesthesiologists realize this. I'm not, they're, they're not ignorant of this. They realize this, you know, very explicitly. So they give older people less anesthesia to achieve the same anesthetic state. It turns out if you monitor with the EEG, you can probably give them even less than what you might imagine. So you have a greater likelihood of, of helping to have harming the brain less than you would just following sort of standard conventions. But to be able to do that, you have to monitor. You have to use the EEG to track the brain states of patients under anesthesia. And that's something which is not routinely done. It's not part, it's not part of mandatory care uh, for delivering general anesthesia. And you mentioned patient age impacts the lasting effects of anesthesia. I was wondering how about for patients with or at higher risk for developing neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease? How might anesthesia impact the cognitions of these patients in a long run? The, the first time I realized of the importance of the impact of uh, anesthesia on older patients in particular. So we won't say anything about whether they have Alzheimer's or neurodegeneration or like that, but just, just older patients in general. Is One of my... Uh, neurology colleagues, Brad Dickerson, came up to me one day in the cafeteria and we were talking about the work that we were starting to do on anesthesia. And he says, Emory, do you know that I, I frequently get my first consult to see, he's a geriatric neurologist, to see um, patients, um, it's after they've had anesthesia and surgery. And, you know, the, the, um, you know, the family comes to me and says, you know, Uncle Harry isn't, the way, isn't himself anymore. So he noticed that anesthesia was kind of like a precipitating event to maybe the person was already predisposed or they're just getting older. And the fact that they had anesthesia and surgery maybe accelerated or initiated, you know, that, that, that particular process. And so now this has been studied a fair amount and, and, you know, documented in a number of investigations that the likelihood of someone who, I'll just pick a number over 50 or 60, some sort of brain dysfunction, after anesthesia, which could be a wide range of things, is is non-trivial. It could be you know twenty to sixty percent. Right. So that's something we have to do something about. And if you ask like why might that happen, well, if I, I take a slight digression and just say how does anesthesia work, well, among the many ways that it's probably working is by generating oscillations. The oscillations in the brain's you know electric circuits make it difficult to transmit information. And so, you know, you, you have normal oscillations in the air with the black with high frequency. What happens is oscillations get shifted towards these high frequency, excuse me, high amplitude, low frequency oscillations, and they maintain them. And they're not natural. And so what happens then is you maintain these, this pathologic state for an extended period, the, time of, the length of time that you need to have surgery, and basically, it's not surprising that your brain doesn't work after being in that condition. And in fact, I'm amazed at the brain and how it's able to come back after being in a situation like that. So, so that's what's transpiring. We need the oscillations because that's how the drugs are working to turn the brain off in a sense, right? But by the same token, 
you know, the, they're, they're also perhaps they're potentially harmful to the brain. So I think that that's the conundrum that we find ourselves in. And so until we find other approaches, which maybe don't operate with that mechanism, mitigate to give us a harder way. Wow, that's really interesting. And given that all three of us are involved in Alzheimer's research and exploring similar questions, we will look forward to seeing your future work on this. Absolutely. In the last part of our time with you, we'd love to return to your lifelong passion for learning languages. So throughout your career, you've kept up with French and Spanish and even expanded to these other languages. What are some of the lessons that you've taken away from your studies? Well, I, I think, you know, and Karen and I were talking about this earlier today, I think that the, the, the cool thing about it is it just, um, it, it just creates sort of a general deference for cultures in general. You know, it just opens up your mind. And the other thing, too, is like if you're like I remember when I was in France and um, I had to stand on a long line to get my visa stamp so I could, you know, enroll in the in classes and things. And then it just gives you a, a, a much uh, and, and your 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 whole life seemingly depends upon getting that visa stamp right at that moment. And you start to realize, you know, what the situation is like for immigrants coming to the United States. And, you, you know, it gives you just this insight that you wouldn't have, you know, sort of otherwise. All right, guys. So we are on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to support us in bringing you this type of science podcast that we've been bringing you, please go on Apple Podcasts and give us a, um, a rating as well as some feedback. So I'm curious, what are some examples of why it is so meaningful to you to be able to communicate fluently in foreign languages? I mean, what changes when you deliver a lecture in Spanish or even converse with a friend in French in his native language, you know? I find the languages, I just find the languages fascinating because the, um, you know, the, the ability to just communicate with other people on a whole, sort of on their terms, I guess, is what's really appealing to me about it. You know, it's, it's not just making yourself understood. It's like, you know, really making, you know, making them feel at home because, you know, you're at home with, you know, their way of thinking or their way of expressing themselves. I think that's really important. Last year, a couple of years ago, I was in, I landed in Paris at the airport and I got in the taxi. And uh, the taxi driver asked me where I was going. I told him the hotel I was going to. I gave him the address. And uh, he says, uh, he says, where are you coming back from? I said, I said, I'm not coming back from. I said, I'm going to. I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here for a meeting. He goes, oh, you don't live in Paris? And no, 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 I'm not, I'm not from here. I said, I'm, you know, I'm from the U.S. He goes, oh, you have no accent. I mean, and and that's like the highest compliment they can pay you because otherwise, it's like, let's just say it's not what French people usually say to Americans when they're speaking French. Let me just put it that way. You know, so I was like, yes, yes. And even after 40 years, I still got it. You know, yes, yes. So, so, so that's what I obsess about, you know. Professor Brown, do you have any approaches to studying foreign languages you found to help with your acquisition across different languages? So I developed this way of learning languages to, to, because as I said, I didn't want to just make myself understood. Emery, hungry, you know, feed me, I, you know, that sort of thing. You know, I wanted to, you know, 
I would love a gorgeous meal, please, if I could have one. You know, I mean, you know, I want it to be completely clear. And so I had, I, I developed this, this way of learning the language, which was, was like parsing. So I would say something to you, right? And I, and then, so, you know, and I would listen to how you responded to me, how you parsed the response back. If you use the expressions that I used when I spoke with you, right, then I learned that I was saying it correctly. If you use this set of different words, then I knew that I was saying it incorrect, then I had to modify it the next time. I yeah, I was going to have kind of a follow-up question because when you said that, how, you know, the technique you use to parse languages, I realized that is exactly what I do during medical school. I actually listen to the physicians and attendings after I've tried to explain or you give a presentation and I'm like, oh, that I totally butchered it pretty much every time. But every time I would pay attention to the words they use and the, the kind of order and uh, kind of uh, it could be formulaic or it could be just natural based on their personality. I picked up the things I enjoyed, um, the way they presented, the way they, you know, the words they use, for example. And I feel like that was very much applicable to medicine. And I wonder if you noticed that as well and if you're able to apply that technique as you're going through your training. Yeah, it's true because it's all part of becoming, you know, we, we don't grow up being fluent in, 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 in medical speak, really. I mean, we learn it, right? And so that same sort of process really has to has to take place. And um, <clears throat> and for me, when I'd done this in Spain, I realized that I should do the same thing when I was studying French. And so you're, you're right. I mean, I, I think it's, it, it's exactly... And then, and then you've seen it and you, when you finally give that presentation of the patient, you know, you hit all the major, you figure out what the salient features were. You went through the review of systems you know, in a very systematic and accessible way. And the team and the team may not say great job. They just go, OK, now now we can start. You know, but, you know, yeah, I did it right because, you know, they're not lingering on asking me additional questions or trying to figure out what, you know, trying to figure out data that I didn't provide them. Yeah. So like, I, I, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great analogy. I think that is the case very much so. Thank you so much, Professor Brown. It's been a real honor and pleasure having you on our show today. And I wish you a beautiful day. Oh, no, no problem. I mean, thank you guys. I mean, gee, anytime somebody wants to sit, listen to you pontificate about your life, man, that's kind of an honor. So thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Kira Brenner, edited by Tavi Pollard, and mixed by Jared Worsoff. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand.